Nehemiah chapter 13. We pick up a story today of God's chosen people several years after a great revival had broken out. When you see in verse 13, it says, on that day, later on in this chapter, we find that Nehemiah had left town. And then when he came back, what he found was the people of God in spiritual decline. And so this chapter that we will explore, I think, over the next several weeks, it breaks down into three different movements, is a stark reminder to God's people corporately and individually of the big truth that you see on your sermon outline. And here it is, it's not just an ancient, dusty collection of stories that tells us this. It is reality for us today that we must maintain constant vigilance to subtle sins that cause us to backslide and defect from our Savior. Let me ask you this for your own personal life, and collectively it will be a reality of our own individual lives, of course. Would you say that in your following Jesus Christ, in your walk with the Lord, are you growing? Are you static? Or are you moving backwards? Are you declining? I quoted D.A. Carson in the outline today. I've quoted him on different occasions. This is one of my favorite quotes about our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it with me, that I'll read it and you follow along. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, toward obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of our loss, of our lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. And that's why the song that we just finished singing, with that line that I hope all of you took to heart, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We have to realize that the fire of the Holy Spirit, what God is doing in our lives, is going to go out unless it is stirred and the ashes are removed. We have to realize that in a lot of ways we're like a, a flat tire on a car. 
Usually it's not by just an injury or a damage to the tire. Most often it's through a slow leak. And then all of a sudden it gets flat enough where a blowout causes pain and injury. Constant vigilance is needed. This last week I finished a book that I've been reading for a while. And I was struck, even though a true story, a secular happening, it had to do with exploration of the North Pole back in 1880. The USS Jeanette and its crew of 33 went off to discover the North Pole. Now, I was thinking about how recent relatively that is. The North Pole was not discovered officially until 1909. But this voyage took off and became firmly fixed in an ice flow. It's an incredible story of heroism and, and endurance and all of the rest of that. But what I was struck by in terms of looking at the message that I was about to preach this Sunday is that when the USS Jeanette got stuck in the ice flow, they were stuck for 22 months. It's almost two years, guys, in an ice flow. And to them, it seemed as if they were stuck in one spot, but almost imperceptibly, the ice flow was moving. And so they didn't stay in the same place. They traveled hundreds of, mi- hundreds of miles from where they were and certainly from where they wanted to be. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Have you ever been stuck in an ice flow of sin? You thought you were in the same place. Maybe you came to church. You realized maybe one day through a pastor's sermon or a conversation with a a friend that you had traveled many, many miles away from where you once were. Sin is kind of like gravity. Sin never takes a vacation. And so the picture here is that there is that propensity to wonder. And that's why we have words in the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. I'm going to give you two from two men. This is James, the Lord's brother. A guy that had it together, and so he's not just some naysayer. He cares about the church, he cares about Christians, and he has these words, strong words to say. You adulterous people, he's speaking to Christians who've drifted. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God? Is that possible? Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says that He yearns jealously over us, the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? John, in in the letter of 1 John, says almost the same thing, almost verbatim. Now remember, too, this is the guy that's called the, the apostle of love. 
And we have so misused that word today. Love means that I want the best for you. And certainly John the Apostle did. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty stark. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring how the people of God, about 2,500 years ago, that they fell into this thinking that they were okay and Nehemiah was loving enough to confront them with the reality of their situation. You're going to see some strong rebuke. Three times, there are three different situations, and three times you're going to see a very, very strong rebuke, a very, very strong action against sin. Why? Because God is jealous for you. Let me say that again. God is jealous for you. He wants the spirit that he's made to dwell in you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your worship. And godly jealousy, God's kind of jealousy, is a good thing. And so even though we see how the people of God have drifted and how Nehemiah comes along and he seeks to do his best under God to correct it, he even asks after every section, the help of God, remember me, O Lord, in the work that I do. I want you to get this, that when you see these strong rebukes, there is grace in every rebuke. Not just for the people of God back then, but for you. And so receive the, the, the words that I'm sharing with you today. And if it feels like a rebuke, remember it is because God is jealous for your love for him. Following Jesus means following Jesus. And God will have nothing else from his people. That's why that's why Jesus himself uses terminology like cutting off hands. What's that? Plucking out eyes? For somebody who's wandered in today and you say, is that really in the Bible? Yes, that's the seriousness of sin and why we must deal with sin according to the Lord Jesus. I was was studying this last week and and I thought of something else. Sin is really distasteful, right? For a believer, do you agree with that? Amen. And when I, when I thought of the word distasteful, I thought of this and I thought, no, I, should I really share that with the people? Yeah, I should share it because it's in the word. And Peter uses this kind of terminology, but he basically is just going back to talk about how horrible it is that we go into any kind of sin. We'll come to that in a minute. But Hebrews 12 says this, have you forgotten the exhortation that God gives to you as sons? The one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Proverbs 4, or 1 John, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 4, 23 says it like this, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And, And as I looked at that verse today and throughout this last week, I, I, I thought of, of all of you sitting out here today, but I particularly thought of our students. And here I am at the last of my life, and, and, and 
it's, it's for me as much as it is for you. But here are many of you at the beginning of your walk with the Lord, and you need to watch your heart. You need to watch your heart, students. God says it. God is not seeking just outward conformity. We're never about that. He's seeking a heart change that leads to outward conformity to the things of God. So here's what we're going to do. You see the movement here. I'm actually going to read the Scripture today, and then we're going to comment on it. I'm going to come to that distastefulness of the reality of sin. So let's look at this together. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read right now uh, through verse 3, okay? On that day, several years later, we see from verse 6, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam, the false prophet, against them to curse them. But guess what God did with that? Yet our God turned the curse into blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, this is right now at this point, they separated, them, uh, separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Hang on to that. That's very important. Now, before this, well, let's stop right there. We'll get to that next part in just a minute. The first area of spiritual decline was a failure to separate from sin according to God's Word. They read the Word on that day. And I have said this over and over and over again. You must have a constant intake, a regular intake of God's Word so that your conscience can be informed by Scripture so that you can be sensitive to sin. And the utter horror of it, the utter repulsiveness of it. I said just a minute ago that Jesus used some very strong words about how deadly sin is, but it's also distasteful. And We see this from a couple of passages of Scripture. I always find it interesting that whenever a, a, a verse or a passage is repeated, Old and New Testament, that, that God wants us to take note. And I find it interesting that in the Proverbs, they, the, the writer went to a, a common occurrence to show how repulsive it is that when a person who has been born again, a child of God, returns to those things that once were enjoyable to him. He not only says it in Proverbs 26, 11, it's repeated in 2 Peter 2, 22, and a whole list of things that do not, listen, they do not match up with the followership that we have been called to show in following Jesus Christ. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Yeah. Why does God put that in there? It's His inspired Word, not mine. He put it in there to show us how repulsive that sin must become to us. And it's never going to be uh, repulsive to us unless, like in the first three verses, you have a constant intake of the Word of God and your conscience becomes sensitive, not hard, 
to the things that you once fed on that you no longer do so. Now, what's interesting here is, you heard what it said in verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Please, please hear me as to what they were really trying to accomplish. This is about protecting the integrity of worship. Okay? Not only corporately, but also individually. This is not a racial situation. It's not an ethnic problem of separating from foreign people. It's a sin problem. It's an idolatry problem. It says no Ammonite or Moabite. God was absolutely righteous in His justice. He always is. So if God said no Ammonite or Moabite, He had good reason. And He even spells it out here. He refers back to the time the people of Moab, the people of uh, Ammon, were not neutral toward God. They were haters of God. They were haters of God's people. And they sought not only to hinder them, they sought to just blow them out of the water. They sent a false prophet named Balaam. The reason that I know that this is not an ethnic or a, a, a racial situation is that individually, any Moabite who repented and turned away from sin could be accepted into the family of God. Do you remember a notable Moabite who did exactly that? Her name was Ruth. And when she said to Naomi, when she said, my God, your God will be my God, she was turning away and leaving the idolatry of her people and following after Jehovah God. And she found her name in the lineage, not only King David, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God desires and demands from his people that we turn, <clears throat> excuse me, turn from sin and turn to him. John Owen said it like this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. <clears throat> God's word is the object of cleansing. Soap and water clean away dirt. And so we find in Ephesians chapter 5 that very thing, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. John 17, 7 adds, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, how can a young man Keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up my word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And this is the reality of it. This is why it is so important. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is writing 
remember the context of this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He has just gone through a correction of a church member who apparently was a true believer who had fallen into sexual immorality. Paul said it's the kind of sexual immorality that even the Gentiles don't get into. And so he comes out of that with this loving, firm reminder to the people of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Now, this is interesting. At the, at the head of most lists, not all of them, but he says here, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and he goes down the list that those people who choose to remain in that lifestyle, who prove to, to the world and to themselves that they are not true followers of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3 uh, also says this. So let me go back here because he's trying to say, we, we want better of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Colossians 3, 5 says almost the same thing that we've been saying. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What heads the list? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, be killing sin. Sin is never neutral. Sin never takes a holiday. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's move on. Verses 4 through 9, getting rid of compromising relationships. Now, if these things look familiar, they are. Back in chapter 10, when Nehemiah was telling them, instructing them, these are the things that will make for you walking in the way that is pleasing to God. And they said, we're going to do all of these things. And you come to chapter 13, and they did none of these things. They threw them all aside. So the second thing, getting rid of compromising relationships. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. Now, before this, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Now, remember who Tobiah was? Some of you who haven't been with us for this study, for this journey through Nehemiah, Tobiah was an Ammonite. What did he just say? No Ammonite is to ever go into the temple. They are fierce enemies, haters of God. And here's Tobiah, an evil man. Now watch this. The priest, apparently the high priest, Eliashib, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Lord, uh, by commandment to the Levites, singers, and the gatekeepers, and the uh, contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So here's the people of God, the, the, the priest bringing Tobiah, a sworn enemy, into the house of God and taking the place 
of other things. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered, look at this, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, we're going to come back and talk about this. What was Nehemiah's response? He was a leader. He knew what evil in the house of God the temple would do. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they cleansed the chambers. Several commentators said that this meant they fumigated the temple. They didn't even want the smell of Tobiah in the place. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, the grain offering and the frankincense. I don't know how I can say it more forcefully or any better than Scripture says it. God is is a jealous God. Oprah Winfrey does not like that message. And she said that's one of the things that drove her away from Christianity when some of her old-time preachers said that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for His glory. He's jealous for the holiness of His people. Exodus 34 reminds us, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you go, the Moabites and the Ammonites, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break down their pillars, and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, he is a jealous God. And you know what? That's a good thing. He wasn't the only one that said that God was jealous. So was Paul. Paul was jealous for the purity and the holiness of God's people. He said so much in 2 Corinthians. Now, remember, he's dealing with a a group that didn't remain neutral. They slid back into all kinds of sin. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So was Nehemiah. And what we see in the words that we read just a few moments ago, that his heart was to protect God's glory, and God's people. Because he realized what was happening. This was compromised worship. For the leader to actually bring Tobiah the Ammonite into the house, take the things meant for the provision of worship out of the house of worship, and to set up what appears to be, from the passage of Scripture, not only a large chamber, but several rooms for Tobiah the Ammonite because he realized that worship for Israel was being compromised. 
it's kind of interesting when we read a little bit later on in this chapter, we're going to find, you know, how, how could this happen? How could a leader not recognize that he's doing something that is spoken of as being evil in this passage of, of Scripture? Verse 7, spoken of as being evil. It was because of relationships. Family relationships between Tobiah and Sanballat and Tobiah that he let his guard down and he invited. Tobiah didn't just sneak in. He was invited in. Wow. I was talking with someone recently. We were talking about How, how people come into the church. And we were talking about our membership process. We have a membership class going on about 13, 14, or over there right now going through their second hour of learning about our church. And, and then after that, elders will come and meet with them. And we want to be as helpful as we can to, to, to ask them, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to know that so that the people who come into our church are, listen to me, as far as, as far as we can tell, regenerate. And I have found more allowances made. You remember the First Corinthians passage, 6, about the unrighteous not inheriting the kingdom? How when many times a family member, professing Christian who falls into a certain kind of sin, whatever kind, and the other family member takes up his cause and says he or she ought to be a member of the church, even though living in open sin. When I see Nehemiah's response to this, he was angry. He didn't mess around. He didn't go to, to buy and say, hey, you know what? We've got an auxiliary membership. We'll, we'll let you do that. He, he didn't do that. There was no conferring with Tobiah. He went in and threw all of his stuff out into the street. Now, I don't doubt that Tobiah on the outside might have been a really great guy. He probably was. Is anybody old enough to remember, and maybe some of you guys have watched, you, you call it retro? Leave it to Beaver. Okay? Do you remember the character? You know who I'm going to talk about. Eddie Haskell. No, no, Hutch doesn't remember. Okay. Eddie Haskell probably, I was thinking, okay, what, what was uh, Tobiah? He was probably like Eddie Haskell. This great smile. Hi, Mr. Cleaver. Hi, Mrs. Cleaver. And always so nice to the parents. And then when they weren't around, he was always trying to get Beaver to do bad stuff. A Tobiah in the temple is not benign. Let me filter that down for you a little bit more. A Tobiah 
what's the title of this part of it? Unholy, unhealthy relationships. A tabaya in your temple that you have invited in is not benign. And we have talked about this over and over and over again. And that relationship can start so innocently with a smile, an Eddie Haskell kind of smile. And once that Tobiah gets into your life, it's kind of like what Paul said before he talked about the verse, 1 Corinthians 6, a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, you know what, guys? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Clean it out. By the way, if you think that Nehemiah's response was a little bit on the rough side, I remember a story in the New Testament of another guy who cleansed the temple and probably was accused in that day of not being very nice about it. Two things, one to the general and and one, two to to everybody, one of these is to to the students particularly. One thing that, that I need to remember, and I think you need to remember it too, it says he was angry. I need to learn to be angry at the right things, and so do you. God help us be a church that we're angry about the right things, because my tendency is to get angry about the minor things and be passive about the things that are really important. My guess is that you struggle with that too. Second thing is this. Oh, our our students, our younger people particularly, it it travels over into those of us who are more mature. Howard Hendricks, Dallas Seminary, used to tell his students this, his last year students, there are two factors that above all other factors, factors will determine where you will be in 10 years. You know what they are? Those two factors, number one, the books you read. And what's the book you need to be reading more than anything? The Bible. The books you read and the friends you keep. Because you will become like those with whom you spend time. The books you read and the friends you keep. So let me ask you again before we move on to the third thing, and maybe this is one of those places where we could stop before we take the Lord's Supper and confess. Just stop and Lord, I I have allowed a Tobiah in terms of this relationship to set up shop within my temple. And it's dragging me down. I'm not staying neutral. Lord, if I'm honest, it's dragging me down. It's turning my temple into a storage unit for compromise. Let's go on to the third Application, these last two, very important, verses 10 through 13, purifying our stewardship of God's resources. I'm not going to say a much, a whole lot about this. We've already had a sermon on this, but he says it again, because they made vows that they would be good stewards, they would support the work. He says in verse 10, 10 through 13, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They had to go out and 
Instead of doing the work of ministry, they had to go out and earn a living for their families. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shemaiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the, the son of Zakur, and the, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Let me just say this. We don't own a thing. We're stewards. We're steward of our time, our talent, our treasure, and the truth of God's Word. And where we get into trouble like they did is when we start thinking, hey, this is mine. I'm not really obligated to anyone but myself as to how I invest my time or my talents or my treasure or the truth. And as we've discovered before, our stewardship of all of those things ought to be voluntarily and gratefully and cheerfully. It ought to be regularly and systematic and proportionate. It ought to be sacrificial and comprehensive. And we give to those who minister and to, then to those who are in need. And then the last one. I, I find this to be remarkable. I, at first, I struggled with it. It sounds rather self-serving because in verse 14, this is going to be, this is going to be repeated after each one of of the areas of correction that Nehemiah does. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. That is not a self-centered prayer. It sounds like it. Nehemiah is saying, like Carson said a minute ago, D.A. Carson, we read that, apart from grace-driven effort, we will compromise. And that's, what, that's what Nehemiah was talking about. That's an encouragement to me. It should be an encouragement to you. Oh, Lord, driven by grace, let me give my best effort to cleanse this temple and to make sure that the temple of God called the church at Heritage is built up, does not go back into compromise, is supplied with all the needs that we have. Psalm 90 verse 17 says it like this, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Remember me. You know, a minute ago, we sang the song, and Jonathan and I were talking about that earlier in the week, the prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. This was a guy who was a pastor, who, who slid at the last. We're not really sure if he came back. It seems that he might have, but he said some very, very important things in this song that serve as an invitation to us. First of all, to those of us who know the Lord, 
who may think that we're standing still when in reality we're drifting. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And then I, I think the song sings also to those who may not know yet Jesus Christ. It's an invitation found in the words that he wrote, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I pray if there's someone here today who has never come to the realization that God has created you for His glory. and You have failed miserably to reflect that glory, rightly being under God's judgment, but He has sent His Son, Jesus, for His body to be broken on the cross, for His blood to be shed, so that by repenting, turning away from your sins and turning to God, you can receive the gift of salvation. There are people in this audience, young and old, who need to do that today. There are Christians who need to realize, too, that as we take these elements and we celebrate what the Lord has already done, that we confess and we come back to the realization that following Jesus Christ really does mean following Jesus Christ. And we do so only by grace-driven effort that comes out of the completed work of Christ on Calvary's cross.